Well, may I add my own welcome to Joseph's. It's really good to see you. If you've not met me before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And it's great having multiple jobs, isn't it? It's great to, have the, to play the piano. And it's great to bring the preaching of God's word as well. So it's a busy Sunday, but as we sung, the Lord gives us strength in every situation, doesn't he? And so if you've got your Bibles, please can have Mark chapter 9 open in front of you. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And it would be great if you're looking at it so that you are checking that what we are saying is from Jesus himself and not what we are making up. So, Mark chapter 9. Let me begin by asking you a question. Do you ever look at your life and just think, being a Christian, it's just not quite what I thought it was going to be? Maybe for you that's happened in some kind of dramatic way. Maybe you grew up in a church where you were taught that if you become a Christian and commit your life to Jesus, then you will have a great time. You will have, um, you'll meet that special someone and your marriage will be fantastic. You will have a great job and have loads of money and you will never go into your overdraft. You will have a healthy life and you won't get that cancer and so on. Perhaps for some of you it's maybe not quite as dramatic as that. However, you were taught that being a Christian, it wouldn't necessarily make you healthy, wealthy and successful by any stretch. But it will, you can't get the impression that your life will be happy. There was a deep need for God, you were told, in all of us. And that only Jesus can fill it. And so you committed your life to Christ because you had an aching emptiness or dissatisfaction within you for becoming a Christian would solve those problems. And yet, now you've become a Christian, you don't quite feel that satisfaction or that peace that you thought you were going to have all the time. Maybe your job still bores you quite a lot, if you're honest. You still dream about travelling around the world for six months. And the need to keep on top of your emails, it just makes you anxious. Or maybe your own walk with Jesus this morning is kind of going how you expected it to be. Um, And yet, what makes you anxious about whether this Christianity thing is really the real deal is that everything you've seen around you, you mean you turn on your news feed when you wake up for breakfast and you see story after story of trouble and trauma and suffering. Everything from what's going on in this country, let alone the conflict in Ukraine, Uh, The bribery and the mistreatment of labour workers in Qatar for the World Cup, amongst other things, and children being stuck in refugee camps in the Middle East. And you just can't help but think to yourself, is this Christian thing the real deal? Or perhaps you're you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You're just here and you're just looking into things and we're so happy that you are here. You're looking into things and you kind of like what you have seen already about Jesus. And you're wondering, what is it then going to look like in practice to be one of his followers? And so the question is, for all of us this morning, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus in practice? What should we expect as we live our lives in this world? 
Well, this is exactly what this section of Mark's Gospel unpacks for us. And it starts right back in chapter 8. Up until then, Jesus has been roaming around the region of Galilee. He's been teaching God's word with amazing authority. He's been performing miracles with astounding power. And so Peter, in chapter 8, one of his disciples, he finally gets it and he says, Jesus... You are the Christ. He understands that Jesus is is God's long-promised king. And so he gets super excited about what's going to happen next. And so Jesus then begins to teach Peter and the other disciples what it really means for him to be the Christ and what it means for him and his other followers to then follow the Christ. And believe me, it's really not what they expected. Jesus says, I am going to suffer and die and then rise again. And if you want to be my followers, you are going to have to be willing to suffer and die too. And this pattern of the cross is the controlling idea, the center point, if you like, of this whole section of Mark's gospel. And this morning we are going to see, my friends, Jesus explaining more and more clearly what it really means to follow him, what it looks like in practice. And it's going to be shocking. Shocking in the sense that it's very different to how the world usually works. And so if you are following your handout, your outlines on your little sheets, you'll see our first heading is this. Following Jesus means putting yourself last. Mark uses the opening verses of our passage this morning to explain that the pattern of the cross is not just about personal self-denial, but it's also relevant and relative to other people. You have to put yourself last, says Jesus. Have a look down at verse 33. Jesus and his other disciples, they come to Capernaum. They've been travelling and doing ministries, and now they're in Capernaum. And when he and Jesus was in the house, Jesus asked his disciples, Ear, what were you having an argument about on the road whilst you were travelling with me? But they kept it quiet, because on the way down to Capernaum from Galilee, they had been arguing who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And then, look at verse 36. Jesus gives them a very obvious visual aid. Have a look at verse 36. Jesus gets one of the children in the house, and he takes them into his arms, and he says, verse 37, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and not welcomes me, but as a matter of fact, the one who sent me, that is God the Father. I don't know if you saw this in the news, but this week it was reported that the 8 billionth person was born on this planet. Make of that what you will in terms of its accuracy. Now, in the society of Jesus' day, children were not important. In fact, they were the least important in the whole society. You see, for Greeks and for Romans in the first century, there was virtually no sentimentality to do with children. Abortion was at least as frequent as it is today. And the fantasy of killing an unwanted newborn baby was even more common. There were simply just far too many mouths to feed in the Roman Empire. And so kids, they were useful if they could do work in the fields, 
But as a small child, they were just a burden. In fact, disabled children, they particularly were just left for dead quite often a lot. And they were just abandoned, literally on rubbish dumps. Now, the Jews, the people of Israel, they did treat children a little bit better than that. They did not fantasize about killing them because they saw children as a gift from God. But still, children did not have a high standing in the society. Like pretty much everyone else at the time, you know, children, they derived their social standing only from their relationship with an adult man. And as a unique person, little kids are just better off seen and not heard. That's the culture in which Jesus, in this passage, takes a little child into his arms and says to his disciples, you need to put yourself last, even below this child. To a culture that sees children as hard work and distracting and often just a burden, Jesus says, put a little child before yourself. You need to put yourself at the absolute bottom of the pile to follow me. So, following Jesus means putting everyone in our lives, even the least important, before our own interests. And for some of you, it might actually be a child. We have lots of children here at Hollywell. It's really great to have you all. It might be that your opportunity today is to serve them. Or for some of you who work at the university or in another workplace, it might be serving your receptionist or the cleaner this following week. Or it might be the trainee or the assistant in your research lab at your school. If you're following Jesus, everyone is now more important than you. And you must make yourself a servant of all. I don't know about you, but I find that very difficult to swallow. But I want to give us... I want to give us a little challenge, right? Children, when you get up tomorrow in the morning, and as you look in the mirror, as you're getting dressed, think to yourself, how can I look out for other people instead of myself today? And so children, one example it might be, when you come down to breakfast with the rest of your family, it might be letting everybody else choose their favourite piece of breakfast even if it means you don't have what you want for breakfast. But that's okay. Perhaps for grown-ups here um, today, it might be, after the service this morning, it might be not jostling to try and get to the very front of the coffee queue because you are afraid that the good new coffee is going to run out. It might be, actually today, I'm going to wait five to ten minutes and talk to other people and let other people sample our new fancy coffee machine before doing it yourself. Perhaps our teenagers or our students amongst us here this morning, really great to have you guys with us. It might be this coming week, when you get back home from school or college or your lectures at university, how about ask your housemates or the rest of your family How can I help you and do what you need to do before you get your own dinner and go back into your own world on social media and gaming? And then, here's the thing, send me a WhatsApp message telling me that you have done it. I look forward to reading all of them tomorrow night. But you get the point. Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, you need to put yourself last. 
You need to be the servant of all. Number two on our handout. Following Jesus means having no in-crowds. At this point, honestly, do you think the disciples have got what Jesus has been teaching them? No, not even with this living, breathing visual aid. A child who is presumably still wriggling around on Jesus' lap at that very moment. In fact, what happens, if you look at verse 38, is that John, who is maybe still feeling a little bit awkward about the whole who's the greatest thing, he kind of tries to change the subject, doesn't he? And so he says to Jesus, verse 38, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told them to stop because he was not one of us. He was not part of our group. Now, let's just think for a second. Let's just think. When was the last time the disciples tried to cast out a demon? When was the last time they tried to do it? Do you remember what Joseph took us through last week? Do you remember there was a time before they got to Capernaum, what happened was that they were trying to cast out a demon from a little boy, but they couldn't do it. And Jesus rebuked them for their lack of faith. And yet, here is John having the utmost arrogance to stop someone else from doing exactly what he and his fellow disciples couldn't do. Because he wasn't one of us. And as you might expect, Jesus has a very, very sharp response, doesn't he? Verse 39, do not stop him, Jesus says, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. I think what's going on here, my friends, is that John wants to be in the in crowd. He wants to be in the inner circle. He wants to be in the right gang, so to speak. And Jesus says, there is no in crowd if you want to follow me. You need to give up right now on being in the in crowd. Now, I think some of us at this point can get rather snooty about John and shake our heads and we can just think, "Ah, what a stupid idiot. I wouldn't have done that or said such a thing. But may I submit to you, let's just think for a little bit more with me. Remember, John has just been made part of an inner group made by Jesus. He's one of the 12 disciples. He is one of those 12 who were handpicked by Jesus himself, the Son of God, to be one of his closest followers. And in fact, John is referred to throughout the New Testament as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And also remember what just happened in chapter 9, at the beginning of chapter 9, you would have heard it last week. If you were here, you remember Joseph mentioned that him and James and Peter, they were singled out, even amongst the twelve, to witness the transfiguration of Jesus up the mountain and have this amazing experience. And so you can somewhat understand what John is thinking. It's It's understandable. John is saying, well... I have made it. 
I am in the in crowd. I am part of an in crowd, maybe of an in in crowd, if you like. And so you can see John, he wants to protect um, his position and status, doesn't he? And therefore stop other people from doing other big things in Jesus' name if they are not part of his group. But he is terribly, terribly wrong, isn't he? Because Jesus says, there are only two groups that matter. You either follow me or you don't. If you're following Jesus, it doesn't matter whether you do some mighty work like casting out a demon or if you simply give another Christian a cup of water, you will be rewarded. And that is very, very different to how the world usually works, isn't it? You see, every organisation, every institution, every business, every club that you will ever be a part of, it has an in-crowd. There are always those who have made it to the exclusive call group. And those on the outside who are looking in. Those of you at school, for example, I bet there is some sort of in-crowd, isn't there? And man, I wish I was part of it when I was at school. Especially as a teenager. It was almost physically painful at times to not be part of the group that everyone else wanted to be a part of. And perhaps for some of you, maybe you have been in an in-crowd or you are in an in-crowd. Lucky you. But here is the thing. Here is the thing. If you were in an in-crowd or if you are now, I bet there is an in-in-crowd that you'd like to be a part of. And even if you are in that in-in-crowd, I bet you're worried and anxious about staying within it. The the Christian author C.S. Lewis, he wrote all the Narnia books, but he also wrote a brilliant essay called The Inner Ring. It's online and it's free. I really recommend it for you to read. In it, C.S. Lewis, he describes how everywhere you end up in life, you'll always find a system or structure that says who's in and who's out. And it's not inherently bad. It's not inherently wrong because some things, they need to be confidential, don't they? Sometimes it's good, for example, for there to be a deeper friendship between those who work together closely. Or to have a smaller group and those a little bit more than others. I mean, take a look at Jesus. He himself, he creates such kinds of inner groups, doesn't he? The twelve disciples. But what is really, really bad to C.S. Lewis is the desire to be in the inner ring. Because it causes all sorts of problems. It can lead you to being possibly corrupted into doing things that you know that are wrong because you want to be part of the in-crowd. It takes the pleasure out of things because you're constantly worried about belonging to or staying in the right group rather than just doing your job or whatever it is for its own sake. But most of all, and this is where John gets it terribly wrong, is that inner rings make you incredibly exclusive. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. Listen to him. Your genuine inner ring exists for exclusion. There'll be no fun if there were no outsiders. The invisible line would have no meaning unless most people were on the wrong side of it. Exclusion is no accident. It is the essence. And its quest for the inner ring 
It will break your heart unless you break it first. And so Jesus is saying today, following me means giving up on being part of the in crowd. We need to break that desire that we may have to be on the inside and to be in the group that's in the know, to be in the inner circle because there are no inner rings within Christianity. You're either following Jesus or you are not and that's it. But that's a really hard thing, that's a really hard desire to get rid of, is it not? I mean, I hope there is nobody here at Hollywell Church this morning who would have to be as brash as John and who would think, oh, I really, really hope that no other Christian group even dares try to plant a new church or that new housing development or wherever else that we want to plant a new church because they're not from here. But, please may I ask you this question, have we got rid of this desire to exclude or to be part of an inner ring with our attitudes. Let me, unpa- let me unpack this for us. Do you ever get to a situation where someone is new and they come into church and you ask them this question, what church they were at before coming to Hollywell? But your attitude behind it is not out of genuine love or interest for them, but you're kind of more trying to check out their Christian pedigree and see if they're one of our gang. Do you ever feel superior, for example, about a Christian who knows less Bible knowledge than you? How about those of us involved in different ministries here at Hollywell? Elders and deacons, children and youth group leaders, those who organise different events. Do you ever just a little bit enjoy being in the know or being part of the circle that's planning things rather than just being happy to serve others in that way? I know, and I can tell you from the bottom of my heart, I am guilty of each and every one of those thoughts at one time or another. And Jesus is saying to me and to you today, give up on being part of the in crowd. And then finally, as if the disciples aren't getting enough already about how big of an ask following Jesus is going to be, and how different it is to the way the world normally works, Jesus finishes by reminding them how big the stakes are. Because, number three, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to kill your sin. I'm very much preaching to myself as we go through this passage this morning, as much to you. Have a look down at verse 42. Jesus seems to still have this child on his lap and he seems to point out to the disciples what is quite a shocking verse, isn't it? He says, if any of you causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, to stumble, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck. It's a bit extreme, isn't it? It's a bit harsh. What is Jesus talking about here? I mean, it's one of those verses that I, that I often think of when anybody suggests that Jesus is some kind of meek and mild, bland kind of a character. But it gets worse. Look at verse 43. Verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled 
than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Oof. Sin, says Jesus, is very, very serious. Our own sin really matters. And verse 42, it's not just our own personal sin, but causing other people, Christians, however small, to sin. And if we want to follow Jesus, we need to be utterly ruthless with our sin, because eternity is at stake. Remember, there are only two destinations. There is eternal reward, which is ours if we give even so much as a cup of water to a fellow Christian in Jesus' name. Or there is eternal destruction and fire if we sin. Scary stuff, isn't it? I mean, it was bad enough when Jesus says, you must deny yourself. But this approach to sin is extreme, isn't it? Now, we need to clear a couple of things up. Jesus cannot literally mean here, cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. And we know that because of what he has said earlier in a couple of chapters in Mark chapter 7. But before you start getting all nice and comfortable, it only makes things worse. Have a look at chapter 7, verse 20. Jesus, he is still talking to the people here, and he says this, What causes... Uh, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within. Out of a person's heart, that e- what comes are evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness and envy, slander, arrogance and folly. And these evils come from inside and defile a person. And so Jesus is saying here, it's our hearts the control centre of our being that brings forth sin. And you cannot cut out your heart, can you, literally, because you wouldn't survive very long, would you? But the word heart here doesn't really just mean here, as I said, that amazing organ in the middle of your chest that pumps around blood around your body. The word heart here, it's used to describe the essence of you, your control centre, your worldview, your framework of thinking and your lenses of how you see the world works. It's your mind, it's your will, it's your fundamental desires. You can't cut that out even if you tried. It's what makes you, you. And so the fact that it isn't literally cut off your hand if it causes you to sin in chapter 9... It doesn't mean there is no more punch to what Jesus is saying here. It is quite frankly the opposite. Jesus, he is being very extreme here. And I don't know about you, but I am not sure if we take sin nearly as serious as Jesus wants us to. Something to think about over the next week. But here are just a couple of examples, picking up on maybe... Two things that are always a major area for sin and temptation in our lives. Sex and money. I want to ask you a couple of big questions here. Firstly, how radical are you willing to be to avoid sexual sin 
For instance, if pornography is a temptation for you, have you thought about not even having an internet connection at home or not owning a smartphone or at least having the phone in a different room when you go to sleep to make it as hard as possible to not give in to temptation? Here's another one. How radical are you about using your money in a godly way? Would you be willing to let someone else in the church family see your budget from time to time and hold you accountable by asking you tough questions when needed? My friends, this is really, really, really hard stuff. Let's not underestimate it. Sin is much worse than we normally think it is. And Jesus expects us to kill it dead. And then Jesus ends this conversation with his disciples in our passage and I imagine you know, at that moment, you know, the disciples, they're just a bit dumbfounded at this point. But he, he ends up with a weird thing about salt. Have a look at verse 50. Jesus says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Now, I don't know how, about how many cookbooks do you have in your house. Hands up who has more than 10 cookbooks in their house. More than 20. When we moved here, uh, whilst we were moving from London to Loughborough, I said to my wife, how many cookbooks do you have? How many can you throw away and just use BBC Good Food? But anyway, I came across this cookbook on Tinternet and it was called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And it's all about the essentials of cooking, as you might have expected from the title. But the author in this cookbook describes the essentials of salt in all cooking. In fact, all food. Salt has a greater impact on flavour than any other ingredient. Learn to use it well and your food will taste good. Salt's relationship to flavour is multidimensional. It has its own particular taste. And it enhances the flavour of every other ingredient. Used properly, salt minimises bitterness, balances out sweetness, enhances all aromas, heightens our experience of eating. It's amazing stuff. And salt, you know, it's not only essential in cooking, but it, it preserves food, doesn't it? And it can be used to purify things. And so what I think Jesus is doing here in our last verse, he is calling to mind all those aspects of salt in verse 50. And he's saying that to the disciples what they're supposed to be like. You're supposed to be salty. In other words, as men and women in this church family, as Christians in this world, we were created to be and supposed to be pure. And we're supposed to be preserving the world and we're supposed to be making it better. Saltiness here is a contrast to being sinful. And that's what we're supposed to be like. And of course, we aren't. And Jesus is saying, if you lose your saltiness, our godliness, our righteousness, what we're supposed to be as human beings, then we cannot get it back. And then Jesus simply says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. In other words, in other words, be godly and not just in yourself, but in your dealings with everybody else. That's what it means to follow him. But how? How? 
If you're anything like me at this moment, the overwhelming feeling now is simply, this is just too difficult. In fact, it seems impossible. In this conversation, Jesus appears to have explained much more what it looks like to follow him. But what he has actually done, for me at least, is to raise the bar and rump up the expectations sky high. And following him is not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be putting myself last. It's going to be giving up on my desire to be in the in crowd. And it's going to be killing my sin completely. And I don't know how, and I just don't know how to do it. I don't know where to begin. How can I possibly achieve this? There is an answer. There is an answer, but we're not going to get to it this week. We're not going to get there because we need to wait for chapter 10. So come back in the next two weeks and you'll find out what is the answer, what is the antidote to following Jesus in a messed up world and with the expectations that Jesus sets for us. But for now, if you're like anything like me, and if, if you're feeling that this is just all too a bit beyond me, it's a bit too difficult, and the gap between Jesus' teaching and how you're feeling is all too great, good. Because that's exactly where we are supposed to be at this point in Mark's Gospel. And it's part, I think, why the Christian life isn't what we expect it to be. The pattern of the cross is really, really hard. It's really radical. It's completely different to the world around us. And it's never going to feel easy or straightforward or like we've got it figured out. And so I think the best thing for us to do right now is to pray. That we would understand that, would, uh, that we would shape our expectations and that we would ask Jesus for help. Following Jesus, it is costly. Maybe what you've heard this morning isn't what you quite expect it to be. It might be for some of you, I didn't sign up to be a Christian if this is what it's going to mean. And as I said, some of you, you won't call yourself a Christian. You're just looking in, you're thinking, this is just putting me off. But listen, Remember what Jesus says two weeks ago. What good is it for anyone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? And so now we need to pray and we need to ask God's help to live a life that is different from this world and yet is attractive to this world because it is reflecting the aroma of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, his beauty, his wisdom and his goodness. So let's pray and ask God's help and then we'll sing. Jesus says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Father God, we're sorry that we underestimate just how big of an ask it is to be a Christian and how difficult it is. Lord God, please help us to help each other to live this life, to be different from this world and to reflect the aroma of Christ's goodness which will be attractive to the world because it is so different and radical to what the world is saying and it is the best thing that we could ever want.
Lord God, please help us as a church family to be accountable to one another in how we are living as Christians. Are we putting ourselves last? Are we killing our sin? Are we wanting no desire to be in any kind of in-crowd? Lord God, this is very, very hard. And we are sorry that we get it so wrong. But we thank you that by your Holy Spirit and through your word, you have given us new life. You have transformed us by the renewing of our minds. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to have a humble posture, come to you asking you for help and for mercy. And may we be asking one another to help each other, spurring each other on in the Christian faith as we go out into a new week. In Jesus' name, amen.